This is The Dog and Bone. On The Dog and Bone podcast, I occasionally like to sit down one-to-one with people influencing what's being said and written about media and marketing. So today I've come to the offices of the much-loved trade media brand, The Drum, to speak to its editor-in-chief and one of its founders, Gordon Young. Gordon, welcome to The Dog and Bone. Thank you very much. Now, Gordon, you've got a media brand which claims to reach about one million unique users a month online, and you manage to keep going in print. You run dozens of events and awards. You've got offices in London, New York, and Glasgow. Congratulations on the empire. But I'm sure it wasn't always like this. So how did you get started? Well, we started a few years ago as a very much a traditional publishing business. You know, well, the real story is I was at high school with Nick Creed, who's my co-founder. And we ran a school magazine together called Pupil's Own. It was an independent publication. It wasn't, wasn't endorsed by the school, but we ran it. We sold ads to the local traders. Uh, we published it. We sold it, covered our costs, and we made a profit. Still one of the most profitable ventures uh, I, I have been involved in, in terms of its margins anyway. And we thought, God, this is really easy, this publishing malarkey. Why don't we just not bother putting ourselves through all the hell of exams and all the rest of it and leave school and start a publishing company? And that's basically what we did. So we and Nick left and we then launched a magazine which which serviced our local community. It was Lindsay. Uh, we started this magazine called Lindsay Life. We then got really ambitious and we turned Lindsay Life into a Glasgow-wide publication called The Glaswegian, which was then sold to Robert Maxwell's empire, actually. And The Glaswegian went, went for a few years after that. And around that time, we'd, we'd bought an ad in a, in, a, in a marketing magazine in Scotland called Presentation. Uh, and we bought, we could only afford an eighth page ad, so we had an eighth page ad. So we, we got to know the sales guy in that publication, knew it, saw it, and then a few months later it went bust. Uh, so we thought there might be an opportunity. So we found the sales guy, he lived in Paisley, and we took over the magazine's old offices. We found their mailing list on the floor, banded on the floor, and we basically started what was then called Scott Media to, as a Scottish media marketing magazine. Uh, we launched uh, Scott Media into the north of England, we found we got resistance to the name because uh, the English people didn't regard themselves as Scottish or necessarily in media. So we had to sort of develop a new name. And at that point, it became The Drum, uh, which allowed us... The Drum stands, you know, The Drum's meant to re- reflect mass communication. And it's also gave us permission to cover a multitude of sins because in that tight Scottish market, unlike London, we couldn't work in silos uh, because no one sector of the market could sustain a publication. So in London, where you had campaign, which was very much for advertising, media for media, PR for PR, marketing for marketing, direct marketing for direct marketing, and so on, we had to cover every every part of the market because no one could sustain a magazine. Luckily for us, that's the way the market sort of evolved. Uh, so these silos be- began to sort of dissolve and break down, and so it meant that our editorial positioning matched. So from the so from the north of England, this huge important invention called internet which I remember the first time we came across the internet, I sent one of my colleagues to, uh, to go and check it out for me. Came back the next morning with the report that the internet might be quite interesting. But it was that, it was the growth of our online traffic that then sort of dictated how the company itself has evolved. Because we found suddenly we're getting a lot more interested in London. And we got to a point where over 50% of our, our market was London, even though we weren't targeting London. Our line when we're covering Scotland and English regions was, there is a life outside London. So we're actually very proud of the community in Manchester and Leeds and fought very hard for it. But there was no doubt we're getting a lot of interest in the London market. So that sort of, you know, 
I suppose that almost reads our demand, encourages us to set up an office in London. We've now launched in New York and Singapore as well. And according to the rate card of one of our competitors, we're now the third largest marketing website in the world. So it has, um, so it has broken through. But I think the reason it has broken through is because of that editorial cocktail of covering the entire market. We've never been, we've never been siloed. So we've never only covered big network agencies, for example, or small independents. We've always tried to reflect the industry in its in its full form. Right. So what's your what's your sort of purpose and positioning now? Because you've got this line: we believe marketing can change the world. Basically, marketers are out to sort of resolve certain problems, whether that's in business or or maybe problems facing the community as a whole. But what has really turbocharged that is the use of tech. So the so the, the marketing industry can now amplify their messages and can really sort of leverage their skills, uh, you know, through big data and through tech to actually make much more of a fundamental difference. So I think marketers are now in the front line, front line of a lot of the technologies which is going to disrupt everything from commerce through to culture. In fact, even if the job's working on a cyber warfare issue, which is going to come out next month, now, a few years, we probably wouldn't have thought that was in the realms of marketing. What has what uh, marketing got to do with cyber warfare? And issues dealing with data theft or hacking or maybe business interruption. So I think that's just sort of one yeah. area where I think market, you know, the, the skills marketers have are you know, really vital in terms of actually making sense of the. Surely it's a bit of a double-edged world. sword because with all these new channels and opportunities, as many marketers, um, people like Professor Ritson, for example, who's been on our podcast, will say... You know, purpose-led marketing is a bit of a myth. It's all about flogging stuff. So surely these are just more tools and channels to, to shift goods off shelves and raise share prices. Isn't that, it? That, that's if you assume that marketing is only about uh, selling sort of or consumerism. You know, I think there's a lot more to that. And I think it's the, you know, the marketing skills touch the, you know, literally every part of, of life, from how governments want to communicate to how religions operate, you know, communicating issues in, in terms of emergencies or disasters. You've got organisations like uh, IBM using AI to sort to look at you know issues around cancer, for example. Although a few years ago you said, well, that's not that's not relevant. I think because data science is now becoming such a big part of marketing, and actually understanding and interpreting that data and then applying it is, is a core marketing skill. I think that's where the you know, the power the power lies. It's not necessarily always for good. Uh, you know, I think these skills can be used for less good endeavours, more malevolent endeavours. But I think what it underlines is the power of the discipline. So with all that going on, what do you see as, a, as, a, as an entrepreneur and a leader in the, in the trade, what we used to call the trade press, but the trade media sector? What's the role for, for trade media now in that? Because surely the model, the commercial model, has been heavily challenged and we can get our information from all sorts of other sources, just internet searches, LinkedIn. Um, there's all sorts of ways of connecting B2B marketers. So what's the role for the trade press in all that change right now? You know, I suppose there's two parts to that question. What is the role of a, a news organisation and explaining it? And, what, and then what is the model going forward? I, I, I think what the role of a news organisation, the principles are still very similar, though the practices are changing. So it's really about helping your... You know, the drummer's mission is we want to help our readers make better decisions. Okay, our big line is marketing can change the world, but ultimately our core job is helping readers make better decisions. So it's our job as a, a news organisation is to give them access to, to information and insights which will ultimately help them make better decisions. Uh, help them make better decisions in terms of the agencies they might want to appoint, the strategies they might want to deploy, and, and the key trends in the market. In terms of the, the model, 
you know the you know th that's a slightly different issue because because the trade press like every single part of commerce is being fundamentally disrupted and the changes affecting our business are accelerating so it's very sort of uh, so I don't think anybody's actually settled on what is a, the optimum model what the changes problem. have you seen in terms of where your profitability comes from do you st are you still reliant on advertising or is it more the content model now we have quite a broad portfolio so we have uh, some subscription businesses like the recommended agency register and the drum network we have an awards business we have a conference business we have an online business where we sell display advertising and we have a print business there's no one part of what we do which is over 50 percent of the total when we started 10 years ago the drum magazine was about 80 percent of our business i would say and there was a big focus on reducing that dependence on print advertising and now the print side of the business is maybe about five you know, the five to eight percent of the business. So it's a relatively small part of what we do. Now we still sell display in in terms of our in terms of our website, and that's still an important part of what we do. The concern we have is probably the same as every other publishing house. What happens with that if that model itself is disrupted? Because it could be. And anybody who's ever sold recruitment advertising and and, and trade titles knows that change can happen very quickly. You know, a model which has actually served us all very well for, for, for generations in this environment can suddenly disappear within a space of a few months. So, so we, like everyone else, are constantly looking ahead to try and understand what, you know, how the market's going to evolve and to make sure that we are ahead of this sort of this tsunami of change which is constantly rolling across the landscape. If, if print is such a small percentage and um, it's, it's lovely to pick up the magazine tactilely, but what's the point of keeping going with it? We love print and we're still committed to it. But the magazine has fundamentally changed. Uh, three or four years ago, if you picked up a copy of the Drum magazine, it would, there would have been a lot of news in it, for example. And when we researched the magazine and we asked people what they wanted most of the magazine, they all wanted news and people in the move and all current affairs and you know, current trends. Uh, we deliberately took all out of the magazine before we really had to. And now the, the Drum magazine is no longer news-led and it's no longer time-sensitive. But what we use the magazine for is to... The, the, each magazine tends to have a focus. So the issue in front of us at the moment, and our desk here, is all about China. So what we tend to do is give each magazine a, a central theme, which allows us to treat the magazine almost like you treat an event. So we see the magazine as more, more having the dynamics of an event rather than a publication. And from that China magazine, we will then be able to do events around that. We'll be able to generate a lot of interest online. We're basically using it as a hook or as a device for setting an agenda over a few weeks. Right, really good. Yes, I see what you mean. Uh, and that works really well. So we've done the issues. We've looked at AI. I think the cyber warfare issue is going to be a big one. Your psychology, I see, coming up in your uh, calendar for 2019. That's right. We're looking at what the future of marketing. What's the future skills our marketers going to have as well? So, so it allows us just to focus on one issue and really uh, go into in depth and then set the agenda for a month. You're listening to the Dog and Bone podcast from Propeller Group. If you're enjoying it, please share the link with your network. Subscribe on iTunes or your normal podcast provider. And if you're feeling really inspired, please write a review to help us zoom up the charts. Now, back to the conversation. So when you, this idea of using the magazine to set the agenda and all the other businesses you talked about, there's a clear desire to generate paid-for content, but you've still got a strong editorial voice. How do you tread the fine line when you've got paying clients demanding perhaps a, a, a bit bigger say in editorial exposure? How do, you, how do you work that sort of balance? 
the independent editorial side is still independent, so they are not obliged to write about advertisers or our partners, and they're certainly never part of any deal. But the balance is, you know, the, the separation of church and state is, you know, is one of constant tension in the business. There almost needs to be a bit of tension there, where on one hand the commercial team are fighting for their brands, and on the other hand the editorial team are fighting for the independence and to, and to maintain the integrity of the brand. So I think the tension between these two positions is actually quite good because you really want the the commercial team to be fighting for their advertisers and you know and another side fighting for the readers as well. You know I think that's actually quite healthy. But the issue I think now we face is that the the model, the trade marketing model, is now moving much more towards branded content. Our insight is that we don't think as long as you're honest with the reader that they mind the content being branded as long as it's good relevant and and you're upfront about it do you do you signal to the reader everything that's paid for or do you not? yeah we have the usual tags so it's either sponsored or it's advertising so there's sort of several tags to, to, which describe the, the particular content stream but yes we're upfront about whether or not it's paid for content but also we want to get to a position where it shouldn't really matter. We, we want to get to a point where the, where the paid-for content is just as good as independent content. And that's actually the trickier balance because sometimes you get pushback from the, from the, you know, the sponsors of the advertisers. Sometimes they wanna, they've got very fixed ideas of what they want the content to look like and they sometimes forget they're not writing or creating the content for themselves, they're actually creating it for the reader. Yeah. It's often more like the tone of voice than the actual content covered. In other words, a, a branded content piece can impart lots of sort of factual information, but it often seems to appear a little bit bland because the client doesn't really want to sign off on the sort of reverent joke or twist in the tale of how it's that a journalist would put on it. Exactly, yeah. Do your, do your journalists who write editorially write the branded content stuff as well, or do you have separate teams? We have separate teams for that. So we have, uh, uh, you know, the Drum Studios, which is a branded content team. And, uh, and they specialise that. And it is a different skill, uh, having to take a brief from a client and then work within that, you know, these tight restrictions to create a bit of content that is actually as engaging as anything we would do with a, with a yeah. independently. What about the awards and events side? Because I think you run over 20 separate awards ceremonies. They seem to sort of come one after the other, the drum awards. Isn't, isn't the awards market flooded now? Well, a lot of people say, Gordon, you guys run a lot of awards, and my response to that is always, no, we actually only run one award scheme. We run the drum awards, which is a single global awards movement, and we tend to have competitions within the global, that global movement, which covers every single part of our ecosystem, except, at the moment, PR, but we're going to fix that this yeah, year. So there's, going well, be, good. there's going to be a new one coming. We'll look out for that at Propeller. Uh, and if you go back to what the drum's mission is, we want to help our readers make better decisions. So the awards are an absolutely fantastic way for us to do that. Because the way we can sort of bring, encourage people to send us in their work, we can then have it assessed and rated, and then we can then start sharing with our readers examples of best practice. We can tell our readers who the best agencies are, who are the best people. And that feeds into this agenda of really helping them make better decisions. But the Drum Awards is actually a singular global award scheme. It's not 20 different awards, it's actually just one. Right. Good message there, I get it. Yeah. So what do you see as your competition nowadays? I think the landscape is evolving and a few years ago uh, there would have been obvious, uh, the obvious answers for that would have been the likes of uh, you know, campaign and marketing week. But I think there's a, there's a lot of new organisations uh, coming into the market. And you first saw this a bit with the consultancy, you know, when they launched they had this, you know, it's a you know a brilliant business with great insights, very much in the training space. 
and at first glance as a publication they weren't competition but actually you know they sort of started moving towards uh, creating their own content as we started moving towards doing training so actually the silos between the different or different types of organizations in the space are a lot less pronounced so suddenly I think competition is coming from all sorts of different areas. Yeah, it's not, not just traditional publishing houses. Take LinkedIn. I, I know you're a big fan of LinkedIn and you even have a column in the, in the magazine called Inktin. Yeah. Do you not see LinkedIn as a, a competition for the, the marketing reader? I think LinkedIn is definitely competing for some of the budgets in the market. But my view is uh, the, secret, the secret in this sort of market, you've got to be very collaborative. So I'm quite happy to share content with LinkedIn because I think LinkedIn would exist whether or not I shared the content with them and it'd be a competition. But by collaborating and working with them, I think the jump does get some benefits from LinkedIn and LinkedIn is now beginning to drive a lot of traffic into the drum. So there are risks, but the drum has always been very open about working with organisations where there is overlap. So we media sponsor a lot of other award schemes, for example. We're big partners with the CAN awards. Yes. And there's definite overlap between the drum and CAN. We work with Advertising Week London, Advertising Week Europe, and again, there's overlap there. But we actually work think, with Advertising Week. I mean, what's their attitude to your pub around the corner? That's surely taking footfall away from them, isn't it? Well, I, I think they have the same view as we do. On one hand, it's probably taking some footfall and it's maybe taking a bit of revenue, but actually it also adds a bit another dynamic to it and makes it, makes it interesting and exciting to get any festival to work. Festivals really work if, if you can get people into one place at one time. So people really turn up to festivals. It's not necessarily for the festival itself, but they turn up because everyone else is going. So the more sort of elements you can add that encourages more people into that space, the, the more sort of busier and dynamic the festival will be. So although, yeah, there's some commercial overlap and there's also commercial overlap with what Adweek do, we actually think by collaborating, uh, we can actually gain and ultimately make both sides stronger. Mm-hmm. So our model would always be very collaborative. And I mentioned the, the drum arms. How did that come about? Is that a sort of theme now you try and do at most events? I saw you had one in, you had in Cannes and you got a very good interview with Martin Sorrell, very newsmaking at the time. How did the drum arms idea come about? Well, the idea of events at the drum arms is just to create a less corporate type of venue because when you tend to go to big events, it can be very corporate. And, and walking around these, uh, these huge sort of con- convention centres with air conditioning and it's always dark and Yeah, and you have too much coffee. It's, uh, I think people find a real relief to come to a less formal environment where they can get a pint and sort of have a quick chat and get some time out. So it works very well. From a practical point of view, it's quite good for, for us to have a base for us to have a base as well because the drum, we have a lot of journalists there and it's quite good to have a, you know, a you know, base for the, the team. Uh, allows us to have a base for doing our filming and this holds this, you know, holds our structure together. And, and of course it's great fun in terms of branding. I noticed, uh, I think at Cannes you had your drummers actually in evidence because you were pushing the new drum brand or drum rebrand very clearly. There's a bit of comment, wasn't it? They were cropping up at sort of inappropriate places drumming away. How did you uh, yeah. handle that? Well, actually, uh, we, we, we did lend them to our, some of our competitors because uh, they thought they'd appreciate a bit of uh, action. So they're obviously, uh, we lent them to the campaign a team from the security people heading our way. I don't think they were appreciated, so we'll bear that in mind for next year. But we also had a bit of fun at the Ad Age party. We, we, we lent them there as well. And our, our poor sort of drummers were actually thrown out of, thrown out of that party. Ah. Talking about controversy at um, events, I mean, with all the awards you've had, there must have been a few instances where um, presenters possibly have been a, have spoken out of turn regarding uh, 
sponsors? Have you had any uh, anecdotes like that in your career? Yeah, we've had a few episodes uh, where uh, our celebrity MCs have caused the trouble at awards. I mean, our, our man, Ayunuchi, got into trouble one year when he uh, criticised one of our sponsors uh, from the set. I think that was a, the Express, so uh, that was a bit of fear in him, we thought, and caused a, caused a few issues, but these things happen in live shows. Uh, live, live awards are great fun, actually, because a general point is like t- live television, and people forget that. And I think anybody in publishing, when they do a live show, is one of those moments where you set it all up, you build your set, it looks amazing, how uh, you have your audience in place, and then when the show starts, you're suddenly you've lost control. What happens is going to happen, it just unfolds in front of you. And sometimes it can be amazing, and sometimes it can be disastrous. Not very often disastrous, but we've, we've had issues where we had uh, one of our MCs couldn't read, literally couldn't read. He'd only learned to read about you know a year before the show, so we gave him the script. And it's a Scottish it. award. It's a Scottish award scheme, yes. Uh, we've got better. And it's funny, your, your, your list of your checklist grows. Oh, right. yeah. Can the MC read, read is, now, is now there, I think. But he kept mispronouncing all the sponsors, and that caused his problems. Robert Horn paper was Robert Horn paper. Paper. So no, it's paper. Uh, but in fairness to him, the guy had only he had uh, you know learning difficulty, and he'd learned to read, and he had the guts to stand and try and read a script in front of five hundred people. So one hand, very commendable. But I would just wish it wasn't my show. And then we've had other issues like Omar Jalili, who did a show for us just after nine eleven, and that was uh, quite difficult because before nine eleven. He had a quite a funny set where he, you know, he had two personas. One, he was a, a classic Iranian uh, businessman, and then he turned into a very English management consultant. And a lot of his humour was taking the mickey of the, uh, you know, the tensions between the the West and the Arab world, which was all very funny before nine eleven. But after nine eleven, it took on a whole different, you know, you know, took on a whole, it resonated in a very different way. We had him booked in to do a major awards show, which was supported by the Royal Bank of Scotland. This was huge, and we actually did consider maybe it wasn't appropriate having this sort of, you know, this comedian well known for this Arab humour doing the show because of what had happened. Uh, but we thought actually it was it'd be wrong to sort of give in to this sort of stuff. Stuff the show must go on. So, but we did ask him to tone down the sort of his, uh, you know, his digs at the Arab world, and there's uh, also his digs at America. He had a very strong views on how America treated Arabs as well. But actually, on the night he did the opposite. And you know, and holy heck! I mean, this uh, show. And Fred Goodwin was in the audience. He was still a hero. He was still Fred Goodwin was in the audience. He still ran the. You know, I think at that time was one of the biggest companies in the world, if not the biggest. Before he fell for Grace with the um, the crash, yeah. But Omad uh, just went the opposite direction. He just went. I think he was offended that we asked him to tone it down, and he went the opposite direction. So he never quite crossed the line, but he's so close to the line you could have heard a pin drop in the room. The tension was palpable. Uh, and he even made a joke about, you know, traditional Arab dress being like letterboxes. Now that, that Boris Johnson joke he got so f- much flack about, that was made that night in front of the great and good of the, of the Scottish business community. Uh, so Fred, you know, basically, you know, left very quickly. And I got a whole load of shit from the, you know, the Royal Bank crew. And at that time, they were sponsoring our, one of our events called the Scottish Newspaper of the Year. They instantly cancelled the sponsorship, sponsorship of it on, a, on the basis of that. So it can be very costly. I'm, I'm sure in, later in our short chat, we'll ask you about your other awkward moments or most awkward moment in business. There may be some others as well. Yeah. But I mean, what do you find? You've been doing it for a while now. What keeps you coming in the morning? What do you find inspiring in the job, uh, having been at the top of the drum for all these years? To be honest, I don't feel really I'm, I'm at the top of anything. And I think it's that constant, the fun of this challenge. 
I absolutely love the fact I'm living in this digital age. It's allowed the, the drum to project itself in all sorts of ways, which would have been unmanageable when we started 25 years ago. They say it's, it's possible to become a small global business, and, that real, and really the drum has become a small global business. So I love learning and finding out about the, the, the potential of this new technology, but also learning about new markets. You know, I had a fantastic trip to China recently. I've been in Singapore, spending a lot of time in the US. So just a sort of a fascinating sort of time to be part of the business. So talking specifics, which, which individuals have you drawn inspiration from, both in business and personally? That's always a really good question. There's all sorts of obvious people in there. I've always been a great admirer of Rupert Murdoch. You know, it was particularly around the time when he launched Sky and everybody thought he was insane. He sort of bet the company in launching that, you know, that business and it looked like it wasn't going to work. There was a period where it was very unfashionable to say someone admired Rupert Murdoch. We probably got through that now. But yeah, but, but I think it's specifically that time he's launching Sky and everybody thought he's, going to go, he's basically going to go bust, he's going to lose the business. Uh, and he didn't, he was absolutely right. I've always admired that. Obviously, I really admire Mark Sorrell. I think he's done an amazing job. But I also admire a lot of my contemporaries from Scotland, you know, the, the, you know, the people I grew up with, you know, the old uh, doyens of the Scottish ad market who managed to run really, really great businesses in really, really small markets. So that's people like Jim Falls or John Denham or uh, Ian McAteer or uh, Rob Morris. What were their agencies for those who are listening who don't know all their companies? Well, these are small Scottish ad agencies. And to give you an idea, there's account groups in London bigger than the entire Scottish market. So these people were managing to create not bad businesses, you know, very good agencies who gave very good quality advice, out of basically nothing. And I think in order to do that, they, they needed to be really, really good at you know, running an agency. It's, it's much harder to run, a, run an agency in a very tight market than it is in a, you know, a really big market. Talking about how you're seen to be, I'm sitting opposite you now, I can't, everyone notices when they meet you, the, uh, the flat cap, what's the story behind the, the flat cap, cap that you always sport, even on stage, giving out awards? I've always liked wearing hats, in fact I think it runs in the DNA, my dad wears hats as well. But the thing about wearing a hat is you sometimes forget to take it off. And one or two uh, occasions I simply forgot to take it off, but I found that when we came into London people tended to, memory, you could remember me better if I had the cap on. So after, uh, you know, basically wearing that through basically forgetting to remove it, I just, I, I purposely just kept it on. And it does, it does actually work quite well. I mean, I would sort of uh, suggest to other people, I think, uh, you know, they should consider getting themselves a hat too. Well, I've got yes. a hat, another bit of branded clothing. Well, you, you're, yes, you're famous for it as well. I think we've both got a kindred spirit there that it's better to have something that people can remember you by, recognise you by, than not at all. Coming towards the end of our chat, what's the hardest decision you've had to take in the last few years as you built up the drum? The hardest decision we really had to do was actually disposing of some of our magazines. Because when the drum started, we were very much a, a classic publishing entity. We were getting scale by service, servicing lots of different markets. So we had a you know, business magazine, we had a, a law magazine, and we had a, an architectural magazine called Urban Realm. Uh, which was I absolutely loved. Urban this, Realm? This magazine, Urban, Urban Realm. Okay. But we decided that rather than sort of serve lots of different sectors, we would get scale through geographic reach. Yeah. And we'd go into one sector in real depth and we chose marketing for that. Uh, and in order to sort of follow that through, we decided to dispose of everything which was not marketing related. But I absolutely loved Urban Realm. Please to say it is still going. We sold it to the editor, John Glenday, and he publishes it in Scotland. But I really enjoyed working for that magazine because it felt worthwhile. You know, we were talking about placemaking and building design. We did a, 
a project over there where every year we identified Scotland's most dismal town and we gave it a carbuncle awards and identifying the point of identifying the worst town in Scotland was to encourage the people who were responsible for that town to actually start sorting it out. And over the years, I think we did actually make a difference to a few local communities as well. I've read in your magazine many and, and online, you know, a lot of great campaigns that you've been plugging. Personally, as editor-in-chief, what, what uh, advertising or marketing campaigns do you really admire? Give us a few names. I always find that a very difficult question to answer because there's, just so, there's so many, isn't there? There's so many. But at the moment, I think the, the one that really stands out for me is, uh, you know, what Nike are doing in terms of actually taking real risk and supporting the causes they have supported. Uh, initially, it looked like it could actually backfire in the business, so there was actually a lot of risk in what they did, but then obviously the risk did actually pay off, and I do you know, admire them. I think that was marketing that really was reflected the values of the business. Okay, that's a good one to pick out. So we always ask on the Dog and Bone podcast, Gordon, what's your most awkward moment in business and be as specific and candid as you can be because this is the bit that often uh, raises a, a laugh among our listeners. It's a, well, I have awkward moments almost every day. But one springs to mind is we once ran a survey in our legal magazine which, and this survey was based on how we normally do agency of the year. So we used the same sort of techniques we'd use to identify the best agencies to actually identify and rank Scotland's high court judges. So we went out and we, we, did, we got research amongst uh, Scots, Scotland's QCs and advocates and we got 15 replies for every judge in Scotland. 15 is significant because 15 is the size of a Scottish jury. Oh, okay. And they were rated from things like understanding of the law, clarity in court, compassion, things like that. And then we, we rated, we ranked every judge in Scotland. And our spin on it was we would found the best judge in Scotland. But of course, out of the 13 judges in Scotland, there was a number 13 in our table. And his name was Lord Marnock. And Lord Marnock wrote me the last letter I've ever received, which was written in a typewriter. And the thing about that is you knew he was really pissed off when he was writing it. Because when you, if you held it up to the light, the, the keys had all gone right through the paper. And he threatened us with absolutely everything. But meanwhile, every paper in Scotland followed the story up. That he was the bottom judge. Yeah, so the Sun's headline was, you, you are the worst judge in Scotland, my lord. <laughs> And the Herald and everyone did it, but the awkwardness started to come in when he started threatening to sue everybody. Well, yeah. And he said it wasn't scientific, even though it was done under Market Research Society guidelines. It was done by a research company uh, who'd audited it. He said it wasn't scientific, and, and every paper starting, started retracting. So the Sun did a retraction, the Daily Record did a retraction, Scotland Sunday did a retraction, and then the Herald was the last paper to report a story and refused to do a retraction. On the Saturday, it did a leader that explained why it wasn't doing a retraction. And then on the Sunday, it's Sunday's paper, did a retraction. So the firm was the last. They're really gone. What Lord Marnock did was he took us to the Press Complaints Commission. Right. And then the Press Complaints Commission found in our favour. Mm. And I think I, partly because of that, maybe not the whole reason, but partly because of that, he took early retirement. So I suppose if some small digital agency rings up now and says, why didn't they get one of your uh, digital awards, that doesn't really phase you, given that you've, uh, you, you lived through that. Well, one of many things. But the, but the firm was good fun. That legal magazine we used to own was good fun because we, we did have real judges on the jury. So we've actually worked with you know, high court judges and judging awards, and that's a real insight. So Gordon, it was Burns Night only a, a few days ago, and obviously you're a proud Scot. And what inspiration do you draw from Rabbi Burns? 
Well, Robert Burns uh, inspires me because I think he was a man ahead of his time and he also had some great ideas about the quality of man and, uh, you know, I think he also found a way of putting into words what a lot of people thought but couldn't really quite express. I'll give you one, one example, one little verse here that shows why he is a part, was a part ahead of his time. While Europe's eyes is fixed on mighty things, the fate of empires and the fall of kings, while quacks of state must each produce his plan and even children lisp, the rights of man. Amid this mighty fuss, just let me mention the rights of women merit some attention. And that was written in 1792. Which just goes to show. A man ahead of his time. Thank you very much for sharing that. We've come to the end of the interview. Gordon, thanks very much for spending some time on The Dog and Bone. Pleasure. Thanks for joining us on The Dog and Bone. Please subscribe to the podcast and if you have any questions or suggestions, do get in touch via our website, dogandbone.dog or send us an email at woof at dogandbone.dog.